High Commissioner Grandes Cordier uh, and may I first of all say just a couple of words in our own ancient language. Thoas and Downarum Gawil Shivgalir Lintronona, Agus Gawil Shansam Kosalip, Agus Ferrin Firkin Folcherov Ilyakadi Chokonutron. As I have just said, I'm absolutely delighted that you have all been able to be with us this afternoon, and I'm so pleased to welcome you to the home of the President of Ireland. I think uh, I, I met High Commissioner Grandier last, I think, in, in, in Geneva. I'm so pleased that you're able to join me again this afternoon and those travelling with you, with you. I think it was in June 2018, on my visit to the United Nations High Commission for Refugee Quarters in Geneva, that we last met. May I say what a great pleasure it is to meet you to the four families who are with us this afternoon. I'm so pleased that you are here. These are four families who have arrived at our shores here in Ireland at different times over the past 40 years, from Iran, Sudan, Syria and Vietnam. And each of you has made enormous sacrifices, leaving family behind, taking risks to leave your homeland in order to create new and better lives that have undoubtedly resulted in make your making a valuable contribution to your new communities. You bring to us as well a rich story and experience to add to ours and never be forgotten. The United Nations High Commission for Refugees has had a continuous presence in Ireland since 1998, working with the Irish government, officials and the non-governmental sector and other partners to protect people forced to flee their homes and support them to live their lives with dignity and respect. I think that first about the good news, since we last spoke just over a year ago, there have been de welcome developments, particularly the adoption of the United Nations General Assembly of the Global Compact on Refugees. However, the scale of the humanitarian crisis has risen. Only last month, your commission produced the shocking statistics that the number of people fleeing war and persecution and conflict exceeded 70 million globally last year, the highest number in the United Nations Agency's almost 70 years of operation. That 70.8 million people forcibly displaced is in fact 2.3 million more than the previous year, according to your agency's Global Trends report, highlights the growing scale of the challenge we face in helping refugees, asylum seekers and those eternally displaced. I'm glad that we've just had an opportunity of having a very good meeting about the factors that stand behind all of this. May I emphasize again that you dealing with these in intensified problems means that all the more I admire and support your efforts in doing so. It isn't easy on staff. It isn't easy in relation to commitment. As matters get worse and resources get less, to actually be able to keep going. But it's very good for you to know that you have the um, support of Ireland. As President of Ireland, I welcome the opportunity here at home in Ireland to tell you about refugees, uh, including refugees and asylum seekers living here under the Irish system of direct provision. Last month, Sabine and I were delighted to welcome here representatives of all those groups who are working to support asylum seekers and refugees in Ireland. 
as well as volunteers and the host families who, have in, who are assist in direct provision. But I was delighted to be able to welcome people who had made Ireland their home, some having fled war, natural disasters or persecution. And as you know, we are now threatened with increasing numbers with the consequences of climate change. The challenges that refugees face remain, and indeed some pressures have intensified. As I've just said, part of the growing challenge is linked to changing climate. But dangerous shifts in climate are placing stress on communities where ecosystems can no longer support populations. In this room, the last group like your own that I've met here were representatives of small islands and coastal communities whom I had met when I last visited the United Nations. And unless we collectively take action to prevent catastrophic climate change, as well as to assist communities to prepare for and adapt to changing climates, these population flows driven by climate shifts are only going to increase. And for all of this, you reminded me the last time when we met uh, in Geneva that what we need for this is a global conversation so that the support comes from every elements of the global community to move things forward. Refugees turn to their fellow global citizens for protection and shelter. It is an extraordinary act of hope and optimism to know that leaving these terrible conditions, that you're going to somewhere where it will be understood. Many have had to grapple with a foreign language on arrival, a different climate, a new set of social customs, and others I know have experienced prejudice and stereotyping, born of ignorance and fear. As President of Ireland, I took recently the opportunity, and I repeat it again, that when I hear of this, I'm deeply saddened, and I have offered an apology on behalf of the people of Ireland to any of those affected by such callous and unacceptable behaviour. It is not excusable are not acceptable to say that it is just due to ignorance. It has to be confronted instantly when it occurs. We are all on our shared vulnerable planet, challenged to give authentic meaning to what we mean by that word which occurs in all the religions and cultures of the world, the word hospitality. The challenge of building a real republic one that is inclusive and diverse and respectful of all its peoples, is very much a challenge that remains. And I do want to acknowledge as President of Ireland that we have too often faltered, and we too often continue to falter and fail to reflect on why and what it means to be insufficient in our hospitality. And we've often neglected our duty and our obligations uh, to others. It surely, if you're speaking of hospitality, must go beyond allowing people to exist. There is a f something so much more required. And I do want to acknowledge the work of some of those we have been gifted with in Ireland. I refer to Mr Justice Brian McMahon, for example, in the completion of his work, the Report to Government Working Group on the Protection Process, on improvements to the protection process, including direct provision and supports to asylum seekers. That report is a greatly welcome development, representing an important and urgent agenda for work as we commit to treating those who are displaced and who have come to our shores seeking shelter with empathy and a sense of shared humanity. I strongly support Justice McMahon's recent proposals offered in the Arachthus in relation to facilitating the application processes for various forms of interaction with Irish life. We're in an unusual position where we have people whose right to remain has been granted, whose citizenship has been recognised, but they have no 
houses to go to. Therefore, they haven't addresses, and they need addresses, for example, for applying for a bank account, or, for example, applying for a driving licence to take up occupation and work opportunities distant from direct provision itself. Migration, you see, when we speak of all of this, is always central to Irish consciousness. Our country, which once saw people leave by the thousands uh, during the 1950s, as recent as that, between 1955 and 60, uh, half a million people left Ireland, mostly for our neighbour, neighbours next door. They made the journey to Britain, among them half of my own family. And it is, uh, and what Ireland is now a country that is called upon to provide shelter for, for those forced to leave their own countries. And while Ireland was once a place that people, as I said, were forced to leave, now it's a place that must welcome others. In 2018, there was a total of 3,673 asylum applications in Ireland, which was a 25% increase year on year. So as a result, the number of people living in reception centres now increased by 19% to 6,106 individuals. We are not being swamped. Of these, 12% had refugee status, but were unable to leave where they were offered accommodation because of the continued pressure on our housing sector. Ireland continued to welcome refugees on the resettlement and relocation programme, with 338 refugees arriving from Lebanon and 267 from Greece. And I'm personally unhappy that we haven't actually sorted out our problems with Italy yet, which kind of would have pushed those figures up more, which is due really to a kind of a conversation that should be sorted out between two security representatives, between at the level of our Department of Justice and their, and their equivalent. The first people to arrive via the Community Sponsorship Programme did so in December overall. So overall, 17% of the population of Ireland were born overseas, according to the most recent census we have. So Ireland of the 21st century has become, is becoming a dynamic and cosmopolitan place, a country that embraces innovation, opportunity, dynamism, and creative energy that cultural diversity brings. So we should welcome the opportunity it gives us to widen our horizons, embrace other cultures and other lives. And my message to refugees has always been to ensure that their stories and experiences are added to ours in order to create an interwoven tapestry of rich cultural heritages, all of which are playing a vital part in our shared identity. They should never be, nor are they required, to forget anything. We Irish are a migrant people, and we must always recognise both the responsibility and blessing that it is to respond to the needs of migrants, wherever they may be. Ireland is a country, as I said, with a long history of migration and exile. In 1901, the census of 1901 tells us something dramatic. It is that after the great migrations following the famine of 1845-7, in that census, more Irish people who were born on the island of Ireland were living abroad than living on the island of Ireland. And thus, we have a diaspora, which is reflective of our migrant tradition, of 70 million. So our nation's history contains, too, many tragic reminders of, and I'm afraid, parallels of what is happening in Europe at the present time, of the desperate plight of migrants fleeing their country. In 2011, a storm in Canada uncovered human bones along the shore, and in the following years, experts worked to determine their origin 
And just last month, researchers published their findings, concluding that the bones belonged to passengers of the Carrick, a ship which left Sligo in 1847, laden with people fleeing the Great Famine in Ireland and hoping for a better life across the Atlantic. And the fare to, the, to Canada was £3.10, was £5 to the United States, and the risks are higher going to Canada with lesser vessels and poorer seamanship. The Carrick ran into a storm and was shipwrecked off Cap de Rossier in Grosse in Canada. And among the remains, researchers found the bones of three boys, twins, two of them, that's age seven and one age nine. And they exhibited the severe signs of malnutrition, a sign of the severe hardship which they were fleeing, even at the removal of all these years. The thought of those children, hungry, desperate and afraid, is something which moves us and speaks powerfully to us. The collective memory of the famine and of people forced to flee their homes is something which resonates strongly in an Irish society. As a country, we have known what it is to be hungry and to be forced to flee our homes. This memory of our past shapes our values and approaches today, instilling in us, I believe, a moral calling to help others in need. And we are familiar, too, with one other aspect, and that is, as our people waited in Liverpool to make the crossing to Canada or the United States, they had first their bundles of the little property that they had, but they were manipulated sometimes by their own, and that property was stolen from them, so that by the time they arrived across the Atlantic, they had simply nothing at all. Finally, I want to say that today, then, millions of people around the world face the same fear suffering and desperation of those people who fled aboard the Carrick. And I do suggest that the current status of asylum seekers urgently calls into question political philosophies, as I have suggested already, the principles according to which our contemporary liberal democracies draw a line between what they call the rights of citizens and those of non-citizens, or as it were sometimes prospective citizens, we have become accustomed to narratives of how men and women throughout our world as refugees find themselves living for extended periods of time in unsuitable accommodation, confined to forced idleness without even control over their daily food. So that as Eugene Quinn, director of the Jesuit Refugee Service Ireland, strikingly remarked to me, children grow up without the memory of their parents cooking a family meal. And in my life as a public representative, I met so many women in particular who reflected the pain of exclusion, not only from not being able to cook for their own family, but also from the exercise of discretion in relation to privacy as to time and space. The absence of discretion is in fact actually the removal of freedom. And notwithstanding the development of international human rights and humanitarian law over the course of the last seven decades, I am minded to recall the reflections of Hannah Arendt in her 1943 essay, We Refugees, and later expanded upon in her seminal work, the, the Origins of Totalitarianism, reflections which have lost none of their accuracy and potency. Arendt feared the fate of refugees of that of human beings who, unprotected by any specific political convention, suffer from the plight of being unrecognised by the state. She identifies the deadlock arising from the entanglement between the rights of humans and those of the citizen and the nation-state, the so-called inalienable rights of man, ceasing to be protected as soon as they are decoupled from the rights of citizens of a state. 
leading to this tragic paradox that the refugee who should have embodied the rights of humans par excellence constitutes instead the radical crisis of this concept. These are arguments I made in different circumstances some years ago, but I assure you I have not changed my mind. Herself a refugee from Germany who went through an internment camp in France before seeking asylum in the United States, Arendt had a profound understanding of how the loss of citizenship was akin to a loss of human status. For not only do refugees lose their homes, that is, the entire social structure into which they were born and in which they established themselves as a distinct place in the world, they also lose the political framework in which they had the right to have rights. Indeed, refugees and asylum seekers may have both life and liberty, but they are deprived of the context in which their actions, their opinions, their ability to participate in speech, and thus in politics, have meaning. For Arendt, therefore, to be stripped of citizenship is to be stripped of words, to fall to a state of utter vulnerability. Close to the concept of exile, which in ancient Greece was always regarded as a fate worse than death. And Europe has for many decades been a leader in championing the rights of refugees and since 2008 has processed over 5 million asylum, asylum applications. But it's clear, however, that the rise of populist political ideologies that are based on fear, division and exclusion, with the excluded often being abandoned to become the prey of xenophobes and racists, presents a major threat to European solidarity. And I very much agree with your recent words, High Commissioner. Only if Europe is strong and united will Europeans be able to deal with refugee and migration issues in a principled, practical and effective manner. So far it is clear to me that if we enable and promote a reciprocal sharing of culture and ideas as well as forging multiple symbioses, the cultural diversity that follows will bring with it opportunity, dynamism, creative energy and innovation, such as enriches our society. And thus, may I say once again that I want to encourage you, High Commissioner, to continue in however difficult it is with the critical work that your agency and your staff has been doing for almost 70 years, protecting refugees, forcibly displaced communities and stateless people, assisting in their voluntary repatriation, local integration or resettlement to a third country, highlighting the plight of refugees and asylum seekers, shaking up societal disregard, apathy and ignorance, and advancing discussions that challenge the often defective categories through which our societies grasp the contemporary realities of migration and asylum. And I want to pay the sincerest tribute to you and your staff by working in some of the most difficult conditions around the world. You have been bringing vital assistance, hope and dignity to those in greatest need. And your organisation puts the individual at the start of the response, the human person rather, at the centre of the response. And both words are important, human and person. And may I assure you of my own solidarity, the solidarity of the people of Ireland, and I wish you and your agency continued success and courage in your future endeavours. Thank you, Mr. President, Mrs. Higgins, and dear friends. I have to say something at the beginning. This is the first time 
that I'm received by a president together with refugees. And it is a fantastic opportunity. It's never happened to me. I've met many refugees and a few presidents, but together, it's the first time. It says a lot. It says a lot about Ireland and about its president. And thank you for your beautiful speech, and not only for your beautiful speech, but for all that you do and that Ireland does all the time to support this cause. I only have a few uh, very brief remarks to add because everything has been said already. But really, Mr. President, it is to thank you for a few things that you have conveyed to all of us uh, this evening. One is uh, this sense, this you have described so well that exile brings with it multiple losses, multiple losses, losses in so many different ways. Some are material losses, and I'm sure that all of you who had to leave your homes and go into exile know very well what it means to lose, as you described, uh, homes and jobs and livelihoods and sometimes health and other material aspects of life. But exile is also very often, unfortunately, loss of dignity and loss of hope and loss of identity. And you've spoken about that very eloquently. And this is something that my organization always tries to remind everybody, that uh, the pain of exile needs many measures to be, uh, to be healed and to be overcome. Thank you also for reminding us, especially through your very uh, poignant example of the shipwreck, that, of the ship that was carrying Irish migrants to Canada. That ship included children, and the bones speak or tell a story of suffering of these children before they left. Thank you for reminding us that beyond those numbers that we always talk about, 70 million, 300 million, always these big numbers, there are human beings. Uh, children, women, and men like you here that uh, go through an extraordinary experience of suffering. Our people, uh, thank you for thanking us, Mr. President, but it is true that my colleagues and all the organizations, many Irish organizations working with us out there, have this experience every day of working not with numbers but with human beings through their suffering, but also through their dignity and contribution that they make to the societies where they go to, the societies hosting them, like Ireland, like what you are doing here, contributing to this society. You have gone beyond the experience of exile, and now it's an experience of contribution, of enriching the diversity of a country. And uh, thank you also for uh, reminding us that Europe, of which Ireland is part, must continue to uphold its, its values of solidarity and uh, must not, must not uh, 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 lose this value because losing these values, and uh, these values are very evident in the manner in which Europe responds to migration and refugee movement, but if those values of solidarity are lost, uh, Europe will lose 
its humanity will lose its foundations. We lose the foundation of its own society, and this is something that for me also as a European is a reason of daily, daily, uh, daily concern. And thank you for reminding us that Ireland is uh, trying to work in that direction through very concrete gestures. Ireland uh, is a country that uh, not only contributes financially in, in an increasing way to the humanitarian operations around the world, including refugee operations, but Ireland is also taking refugees from other countries through growing resettlement programs, is receiving refugees directly. Many of you may have come one way or the other through these programs, and uh, uh, the, the manner in which it is hosting refugees is improving, and I'm proud to, to, to have an office here, represented by ENDA, that uh, works with the government, with the authorities in Ireland, to improve this contribution in all different ways. And finally, Mr. President, thank you for reminding us that whilst we and many of my colleagues in the humanitarian community, we do our best, even in difficult circumstances, to help uh, people in distress, people fleeing war, persecution, increasingly fleeing a complex mix of causes, poverty, hunger, uh, climate change, uh, epidemics, you know, it's becoming more and more complicated and difficult, but we carry on. You encouraged us to carry on. We will carry on, but uh, we can only do it if leaders not only recognize us, but gives us support. And uh, you have done it today, and uh, we trust that your example will inspire other leaders to do the same, to show in deeds, in practical deeds, what unfortunately some other leaders are destroying in words or trying to destroy by words. And I, I trust that we can push that back through the good leadership that you have displayed today to all of us once again. And I think uh, my final point would be that uh, I, I've read a bit about uh, the families that are uh, present here today. They come from different situations, Vietnam and Sudan, uh, Syria, Iran. They come from different experiences of exile, but I think what brings them together here is uh, the generosity of Ireland, the fact that Ireland has given them an opportunity to start a new life, and the fact that now they like other people living in Ireland, like Irish citizens, they are contributing back to societies. This is a positive story that we have to tell the world if we want to continue to uphold this cause and maybe one day finally solve the causes of these painful exiles. Thank you. Thank you.